Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Bohurt. Uh, on this show, we talk about some of the finer points of the sport that lads get wrapped up in and uh, a few other things they might not think about. On uh, this week's show, we've got Anthony Lansdale here with us, who is the uh, chairman of HMBGB and a successful white company fighter in his own right. How are you doing, Anthony? Not bad, thank you, Barney. How are you doing? It's good. It's good to see you. It's been a long time since we've seen each other in the flesh. So this is a good uh, <laughs> good way to do it these days. Um, if you just give yourself a bit of an introduction for those that don't know you, you have uh, been known to be a bit of a grey man in the sport, but you've been around and done a lot of it. So if you just uh, run us through who you are. Sure. So um, I've been in the sport for, I think, about six and a half years at this point. Um, obviously, I'm not one of the forerunners. Like, we have guys who've been in for about 10 to 12 in the UK that have been around since before it was really a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I started about six years ago. Uh, wasn't very good for a long time. Uh, cracked on for about three, three and a half years. Uh, when White Company was formed, I was one of the founding members and I've been mm-hmm. doing that ever since. Uh, when things started changing politically in the UK, I ended up taking the forefront with things, trying to develop the sport professionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that resulted in me becoming the HB rep and chairman, which is a <laughs> position I can't seem to get rid of now. No good videos <laughs> unpunished, does it? No, absolutely not. Um, Shown a slight bit of competence tends to breed admin, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, quite, quite. So yeah, I've been around a bit. I have, I have some accreditation. Happy days. Um, so um, you've been in the sport for some time as we've been, uh, and you've uh, been in an authority position for quite a while now. So. Um, you've got a different view on the sport for a lot of people at the grassroots as you look from the top down onto the country uh, because us in our own teams we tend to get a bit wrapped up in our own little microcosms and uh, own little worlds and such whereas you see the entire ecosystem as it was so Mm. from your position how do you think things have changed in the country and where do you think they're going now so for the main for the main part the way things have changed is we used to have this kind of organism structure where you mm-hmm. had large entities that operated which yeah. filled their own teams uh, and in my personal opinion the only time you should have a conglomerate team with some exceptions which i'll talk about in a minute mm-hmm. are when it's at a national level yeah. so if you're competing nationally you have a conglomerate team now if two clubs want to get together and make a team or a team comes together from multiple clubs let's say for example primus mm-hmm. that's that is fine. That that's kind of a community project. Yeah. But if you have an organization fielding an organizational team at every event, that for me is not 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 right. Mm. Uh, that, that no, I don't think many sports do that, if any. Um, so that's one thing that's changed. We used to have a lot of that going on, where you'd have uh, a large organization fielding a team. Now we have club teams a lot more, um, and that's changed. What we do have at the moment, and I would like to see changing, is that a number of clubs don't uh, participate that much internationally. They mm-hmm. mostly focus on local training and national competition, which is yeah. absolutely fine and is appropriate for a number of the fighters that we have, especially the newer ones. Uh, but what this does mean is that it's only two or three teams that compete internationally. Mm. And I would say only one that competes regularly internationally Mm -hmm. because Primus I think struggles with um, people being available Uh, Uh, we've only really got back on the road and I was away for a while with training and then a global Mm. pandemic put the brakes on that a bit yeah I I agree with what you say completely about the early days like I think I probably joined about the same time as you when there were just two monolithic structures and it was us versus them and 
you're either on the good side or the guys in the other ones ate babies at weekends and they didn't do anything hey. right and it was it was a very yes. toxic environment i think there was hey. a few um, little napoleons running their I, own little I think hobby kingdoms def- definitely and some i mean that's mostly gone now mm. um for, for the most part with the hmbgp uh it's kind of just a case of we're not going to tell we won't tell people how to operate beyond basic sports policy uh if you want to have three teams and you want to initiate specific training programs as long as they're legal Mm. and don't constitute don't break any policies or regulations we're not going to really care we're definitely not going to tell you which tournaments you should go to or not go to or tell you who you should take yeah which um should never be happening but historically i believe I believe has done. Um, I'm aware of some tournaments that were not attended because there was no chance of winning them. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think we're in like a that. much um, friendlier environment these days for the sport. It's a it's a much closer knit community than it ever has been before, and I think we're on a, we're on a good route there. Mm. It's quite interesting because as soon as we had these little nodes, mm. these club nodes forming, now everyone just gets on better. So yeah. clubs operate internally, and then clubs communicate in a friendly manner. It's mm. it's great. This is like I noticed this, the I, I think um, when White Company first formed, it was your first tournament that Winter Cup that year. Mm. I think I was there with you. And we all had a big yes. chat there, and it was just immediately after that it went from us versus them. There being three entities in the ecosystem, and that just made it completely different. And people grew up instantly. It seemed. The reaction to White Company's formation was very interesting in general, um, predominantly because it seemed to just be, oh, there's a neutral party now. That's strange. Yeah, yeah it's because the, the age-old struggle was uh, deemed irrelevant from that point on. Yeah. Um, so going on from that, you not only got your, uh, your view on the UK, but you've uh, you obviously interact with the international bodies and you've done a lot of international tournaments. Um, how do different bodies differ from us in how they do things? And how is the UK viewed? What's its international reputation, if you will? Right. Well, I talked to quite a few people internationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked to some of the American senior staff quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, for anyone that doesn't know, I actually work for HMBIA on the CDC. Mm-hmm. So I, I do disciplinary work, which is uh, an absolute joy um it's actually surprisingly light because believe it or not we have very few severe incidents to deal with thankfully you you know i mean you'd think there were more right but i mean yeah it's pretty pretty good work now when it comes to the uk the guys like the americans we're pretty well respected Hmm. um because we go out and we we do what we're doing i i mean even even countries like france and germany as far as I'm aware, they look to the UK as a high-performing team, and despite any ribbing on Facebook, it's it's mostly just down to uh, <laughs> yeah, it's mostly just comes down to yes, 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 um, yeah. Some people keeping that torch very much alive, <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're pretty well respected because we perform well and compete mm. well, and it's not that's not a white company thing because a lot of people do attribute it to white company. But mm. when you look at how Team Two performs, a battle of the nations. It's not at all. As, a, as a, the high performing athletes that we have, the elite athletes in this country are above the mark. Um, and it's strengthened by having, you know, like international world class athletes in the country. Yeah, sure. But they're not, they aren't going to be. It is a UK respect thing, not, not a yeah. team specific one. Now, 
for HMBIA, as far as I'm aware, uh, we're viewed positively. Mm-hmm. Um, we, the way we work, we don't cause any trouble for them as an organization that much. Um, and I've always found them to be very receptive. And even the summit was yesterday, for example, mm-hmm. I had some queries and they were pretty fundamental ones, but they weren't, they weren't big enough to raise in the community during the, the summit. I just raised them privately with with these independent staff who are you know Russian nationals and this is no problem at all they're happy to respond because we're in a good place and we we aren't a bother for them we mm. we go we compete I, I think they would like to see us have more competition so <laughs> yes wouldn't we all but uh, that's something we're all working on inside of a HMBGB at the moment it's, it's a task that's coming on but uh, how do the other national bodies differ from the way we do things which say are there any big differences in the way they work well i think most of them are private companies Mm. uh which is just a i I mean that may just be a little bit too on the nose for uh, organizational stuff but it's it's easier to do that because we're aiming for charitable structure that Mm -hmm. affects hugely how we operate um we're most of them are pretty hands-off with their clubs so I mean, the new American organization is very friendly to everyone compared to the, I mean, not to criticize the old one, but the old one was, uh, well, it's reminiscent of the old times here. Um, yeah, it had that reputation and uh, yeah, you don't have to dig too far to find that. Yeah. And, and when you look at countries like Russia, where their national bodies operate, because um, Russia is, I think it may still be the biggest. I'm not sure if France has overtaken it yet. Because France has mm. the highest number of fighters in Western Europe. Oh, interesting. And I think it might have, may overtake Russia if it keeps going. Mm. Believe it or not. I'm, and I'm, when I mean fighters, I don't mean obviously elite fighters. I just mean fighters full stop. Yeah. Registered fighters. Because in the world, there are about 4,000 mm. on paper. And that doesn't include non-HMB. Um, I think Russia is a large portion of that. I think France isn't going to... Mm. France is over 150, 200. Okay. And they run a lot of uh, tournaments as well, don't they? They've got a very efficient they do. machine they can... for putting the tournaments out. Well, they can populate a 20-team tournament by themselves. Mm. And I mean, given that they used to have 21s tournaments that had four participant teams, <laughs> yeah. which we, uh, oh. until so, until a foreign team turns up. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, they start to shed I a mean, bit. it really... <laughs> it, it really does just come down to the fact that organizationally, we're trying to you have to each individual country has its own way of doing things there's different mm. cultures each uh, country's yeah. in a different state of organization uh we're trying to be very hands-off and let clubs organize things for themselves um and that's mostly down to the fact that clubs know what they want to do mm. and when it comes to organizing something like an event a local club that knows the environment with yeah. our support will work mm. better than us trying to do it because if i'm running up to lincoln you know, when I live in Windsor to try and organize something. It's fine for me to give advice online and turn up on the day and help. Yeah. Uh, And it's another thing for me to try and actively negotiate and run around. And when, when even then the people who need to, the people, clubs have better basis of support internally Mm. than, than we do because we're, I mean, we're we're two years in, um, we don't have a huge body of um, free support. We don't have like a hundred people who who are just involved and want to help us do whatever we want to do. Yeah, we mostly do policy management and all this kind of thing. And one day, yeah, 
it would be really wonderful if we get to a point where certain people retire and then hang around and then help out. Mm. But uh, places like Russia and France, they've got a huge body of, of national level support staff who, which, who you will see at every tournament. Yeah. Which yeah, we just don't um, have yet. No, we, it's something we need to work on particularly is getting the uh, tournament staff like uh, counters, marshals, that sort of thing. Something we're very limited on in this country. Yeah. Um, that'll come with a reputation change I think as well mm. because so that, for the longest sorry no no okay, go on, go on. I was just saying for the longest time in the UK uh, most people got into it through events like Bloodstock and Download mm. which were marketed in a very specific way so I think a lot of the people that got in through that kind of environment probably wouldn't be massively necessarily interested in doing support stuff because they just want to have scrap yeah which is fine um, but we're not attracting that many people who are like, oh, this is a lovely heritage sport. I would like to help it develop. That, that's less common. <laughs> yeah, fair one. So that brings me on to, uh, as you're looking around the country, what do you think clubs independently need to be doing more? What would you like to see more of from them to uh, okay. push the country forward? Okay, so when you look at um, regions generally, um, you've got places like Gloucester. Gloucester has a training site. It's got a training site. It does development. Awesome. Um, the Northern Wolves do a lot of development. And I have, I, I'm, I'm curious to see what they will do because their geographical scope is very large. Mm. And I think, um, well, I mean, I think at some point they're going to have to um, start considering what's going to happen to the distinct regions within the area organizationally because it's just a challenge um to manage that much stuff um especially when it comes to people management and oh we, we've got guys over in crew who want to train but we're all based in sheffield mm. it's a bit of a distance because um, with like <clears throat> yes so with white company we're we're between the furthest member is, is uh, nottingham and they turn up to training like twice a week uh, so they come down to Northampton, like people like me from Windsor head up there and it's a small number of people and we know what we're doing and it's one site and it's regular. Uh, Gloucester is one site and it's regular. Um, all this kind of having a foci to train in, a focal location that isn't a public place is very, very useful. And I know it's out of reach of a lot of clubs because uh, I mean, not to talk numbers, I, we, we got quite lucky because ours is site rental for a place that you can train in is probably going to be anywhere between 600 to a thousand a month depending yeah. on where it is um and we got we got lucky um and we we pay we pay for it ourselves so we pay monthly it's not a club payment thing we as individuals pay for it because it's a valuable location it's worth having and if everyone's committed to having that venue there and you've got 10 guys 10 guys fielding 50 pounds a month which is about the same as a gym sub subscription in most places uh can get you a training venue but but that's not necessarily going to be perfect someone might drop out not everyone's able to pay that so that's kind of an advanced strategy but if yeah. you've got 30 members in your club and they pay dues for their insurance every year and then also they will pay a, like a, a petty amount of money monthly. You can cover a training venue. In a perfect world, we would have training venues for the sport everywhere. I think we've got four at the moment. 
think we've got four. Yeah, there's four in the UK. There's the White Company one, uh, Manchester, Sheffield, and Gloucester. Unless there's more that I don't know of. Uh, Might be another I one believe... coming for you soon, mate, but yeah. we'll, uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll clue you into that one soon. Yeah, um, so, yeah. yeah. Cool. So I, th- I think it is important, the uh, the foci. It's, it's not only the... Uh, the bricks and mortar and the physical aspect of having somewhere to train but i also think there's a uh, a real mental shift occurs when a club gets its own place i think it focuses them a lot more and gives them much more of an identity as opposed it's to just training thing. in a public park once a week well well it's also um it's the whole thing about the mindset of training if, if you had a choice between paying monthly uh, ha- having a free gym subscription for life mm. or having a free gym suite at home, what would you pick? Because I can tell you, mm. I'd probably pick a free gym subscription for life because, man, I'm more likely to do work there than here. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you are right. Um, and I think we're going to see more of it crop up as the teams mature and opportunities come up because, as you say, 10 people paying a certain amount of money, that that sounds good, but you, you need 10 people. Yeah, you, you need people who are willing to do it as well. I mean, uh, and God knows I've recruited and lost ten people time and time again. But uh, having ten yeah. people at one time all willing to pay—that's that's the dream. That, that is that is one slight problem with being in a team like White Company. We we don't have we don't have newbies. Mm. It's it's effectively all experienced guys, and the only people that try to join us are guys with a foundation in the sport already. Uh, and to the extent where if someone's brand new to the sport, we're not going to say no necessarily, but it's probably not the best place for them. Mm. Because, I mean, imagine if you turn up to training, first first time training, cool, uh, we've not got spare armor for you because we don't really operate that way. I guess you can borrow someone's, uh, where that guy's, awesome, cool. This is bogus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> have, have any of your guys actually fought bogus yet? Uh, a couple of them have, like, and I've been turfed out by him a few times mm. uh, he's he's a unique individual pretty singular his monstrous yeah. countenance <laughs> so we have an entirely different kind of uh, environment that we we work around in that respect um and i have to it's, it's it can be difficult for me sometimes because i have to remember that not every club operates like ours does mm. and also our methodologies won't apply to i don't think any club um because it works because of exactly who we are Mm -hmm. we've had one new member in what two years every club has its own character and personality as you say and a a lot of us the the grassroots recruitment and expansion of the sport is what they really exist for um yeah so moving on from what they need to do more what do you think hampers uk clubs the most and holds them back either out of their own doing or just naturally about where we are what, what do you think is the biggest stumbling point for uk clubs right so there's i'd say for clubs there's probably two key problems one which is uh amateur hobbyist attrition mm. because there's not enough going on for hobbyists to keep them super 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 invested mm-hmm. um but there's so, and that's part of being in the UK, which is the second problem. The UK is a really great place for a no fun environment. Um, uh, uh, do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to use a castle, guys? Cool. Are you sealed? Not. No. Get lost. Mm. Um, so I think every castle is pretty much owned by British heritage, or Merlin, 
at this point. <laughs> if you don't know who Merlin are, they run Thorpe Park oh, cool. and Legoland yeah. and Warwick. So because what we do is a competition sport, if we approach uh, most public sites, they're, they, they will pay for a service, but they won't let us host, have an event for their, and then yeah. just kind of let's use the site and take the money from it. Uh, if they're paying for a service, it, I, I think they're usually happier because they're like, oh, we're paying and we get this, but then we have to present it as a medieval tournament reenactment thing as opposed to... <laughs> yeah, so I've experienced that where I've offered them a full contact tournament and they go, okay, but we need to uh, competitively get that quoted and this reenactment cruise can do it for half the price. Yes, <laughs> with less of the insurance complications. But that's, that's not what I offered you and it's not what you wanted. And so now no one's happy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and we had a circumstance before where we've been approached to, um, oh, can you do, uh, we're really interested in H&B, can you do H&B for us? Uh, it's like, yeah, sure, cool, we're not going to include you on the site insurance. Right, so the events insurance isn't going to cover us, so we've got to source our own, cool, how much is that going to cost? Well, no, we're not doing it then, because yeah. we have to pay for it, and mm. it's realistically not affordable for within, because the thing is, until we, this is something I've said a lot, is that we need people who are prepared to promote and run the sports events mm. who aren't necessarily attached to specific entities who are happy to profit off this. And I know that's a weird thing to say considering profiteering is something that we really want to avoid, but there's profiteering and then there's, I'm running a sports promotion company and I'm making it money off it as a business and it's all known. Because if someone, uh, I was working with a guy briefly who wanted to organize a tournament in Windsor, because uh, obviously you've got the castle and everything else, but that entire environment is very restricted. Good luck trying to do anything there. But we had a contact who was with Eton College who owned a section of land. And in talking with him, what he wanted to do was organize a medieval fair. He wanted to charge the vendors, charge for tickets, and basically he would organize and the location, the setup, leave everything else to myself and whoever else wanted to work on the tournament and he would take the financial gains. Um, so basically we would end up with a tournament we, which costs us nothing. Yeah. And at, that would be perfect because I'm not necessarily interested in doing a tournament making 2,000, 3,000 pounds or however much. I'm interested in having a competition hmm. for the fighters. And if someone else enables that by running a business, the, the chance of that event being there next year is way higher. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't mind people like getting paid for their labor. It's, oh, if I get what I want out of it, that is great. So, yeah, well, I don't like is when fighters get charged to have an event exist. Well, there's, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. I think we've been very privileged in for the sport so far to have so many free tournaments for us because it's quite entertaining. Many other sports, you, you always have to pay to get into them. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu, I've always had to pay to get into those tournaments. As a participant? Um, mm -hmm. Oh, cool. Um, from my experience of doing, I've, I, when I, my history in sport beyond this, I never did competitive. So I've done karate, jujitsu, yeah, yeah. but I've never done competitions. I didn't know there was an entry fee for those. Yeah, and the, the way I see it, it covers that jujitsu's always historically got massive fucking medals, so someone's got to pay for those. And I don't mind paying for a tournament if I know I'm going to have decent medical cover while I'm there, if I'm going to have access to 
I'd rather pay a couple of quid and get a really good tournament. Otherwise, apart from this is free, but you're in a field and we haven't got a tap. So good luck. Yeah, there's universally been resistance about paying money, though. I remember, there, I think Winter is. Fight Cup used yeah. to have a fee. Um, yeah. And then on the year after, their Boho League status got not existent. Um, that wasn't to do with the fee. There was some other shenanigans there. But, no, um, I'm saying the year after. Yeah. So there was oh, an issue right. one year, and then the following year they didn't even go for Bohurt League status, but they mm. halved the price of the fighter ticket, mm. um, which was interesting. Um, and the thing is, whenever we've had tournaments with ambulances and stuff, uh, individuals have paid for those out of pocket. Mm. Um, and then there's been some kind of recoup of payment for the people being there or if uh, viewers came in um, now I've been more than happy to pay to the £400 contribution to an event I think I offered to personally uh, provide assist or support to an event at one point because I said you really do need an ambulance given your location I'm happy to provide some of that um, and the whole thing is, is like that's important but if, with what you've just said about um, other sports, if someone said there's a registration fee of 10 bucks, 10 quid, 10, 10 piddly puns, and then you've got five, five, five teams at full complement, that's 400 pounds, that's half an ambulance. Mm. Um, now, in the UK, I think if we were to have five, five, five teams at a tournament that cost money would be like a happy kind of number because frankly we don't have that many whole complete teams at the moment that are operational either through armor injury or otherwise well we have nothing at the moment corona but um yeah if we if we're like france for example where we had or we could expect 12 teams to show up when we put on a minor tournament with no league status in the middle of the country and 12 teams turn up anyway and then each of those is charged, say, five pounds per person. Then, yeah, at that point, you're covering ambulance, you're covering other costs. Mm. Um, it's kind of, kind of good. But if you're doing that, you have, basically you have to provision water, and it's almost de- de- given that you'll provision food as well. Yeah, uh, so I say um, expectation. Yeah, but people expect to get value for money at that point. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm at the point now where I. I'd rather pay a couple of quid and go to a banging tournament with decent medals and I'll get water and I know there's going to be shade and I know there's a medic there if one of my lads gets hurt and there's going to be solid marshalling as opposed to just turning up to something run in somebody's back garden with maybe a list that goes all the way around or crowd barrier lists and I'm I'm done with the rinky-dink sort of stuff now. Yeah, yeah, I... I don't think I would ever do anything more than appear as a public figure at any of those. Yeah. Um, I mean, unless someone's asking me as a favour or something. I mean, that mm. might. I, I don't mind like a. Sometimes you do public show events, but as, as long as the lads are looked after is my point, as opposed to. Well, it's funny you mention public shows because I think the last one that was of merit that I remember. So there's been a few public shows around mm-hmm. where, but they're not they're not often a public show explaining what the sport is. They're often a public show of medieval combat with no context for the sport, and it's an excuse to do a tournament under the guise of a a presentation. Uh, I'm not going to name any specific examples because I think that'd be rude. Uh, but I do recall, I believe yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, did an actual demonstration at the University of West of England, which is my 
maybe it was yourself. Oh, in Bristol. It? Bristol, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, me and Dan, who was uh, on the show last time, we uh, we went down there, done a bit of a show off of it. It was really lucky because I got in contact with this, the Southwest Martial Arts show. I just saw it mm. come up and I was like, I'm going to chance my arm here. Would you like us to appear? And I was expecting to be rotted off or be told I had to pay to get in there and they offered us money to do it and it, it was amazing and um, oh that's it, it covered my costs it got Dan down it <sighs> no one ever makes money out of this sport when you're a competitor but um, no it was uh, it got the word of the sport out there a bit more but um, as you say some of the other ones uh, they, they can be good for recruitment they can get the word out and mm. again it is an excuse to get lads in armour in public I find yes um, but the education element for the for the sport specifically it needs to be there. HBI is putting a push on that at the moment because yeah. what's kind of happening sometimes there's an event and it's like there's people fighting and then people go they watch the fight and four five hundred people go that was a nice fight and then they walk away and nobody knows what HMB is still. Hmm. I mean, uh, it doesn't least, help. Least sport need, is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, going on from there, those are the things that. Uh, you'd like to see us do more and what's hampering us so all of that combined and what you've seen from us what do you think is the national character because um, we all look at foreign teams and we get a we have an idea of who they are um, what do you think the national character mm. is of the UK at the moment well it, it depends at what level <laughs> so if we if we were to uh, if, if, if French people see English people I think they kind of anticipate that it's going to be a hard day mm -hmm. uh, generally I, I think it, when we go abroad people expect a tough fight mm -hmm. but for the most part we behave ourselves we're well received we're polite so I guess um, tough but pleasant if, <laughs> if that makes sense yeah yeah um, I, I've heard people bemoan and complain every time like when we've gone abroad like, I think we went to a French tournament that was entirely French people and they expected no foreign visitors and we turned up. Yeah, you and see a shoulder drop every now and then, then you're like, oh, unhappy. Yeah, that was, a, that was an easy morning. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I think, the, I think the group matches were between a minute to two minutes each. It was very, very light work after a long drive. Um, but yeah, as a, as a nation, uh, we we are generally, I think, perceived as pretty stalwart, uh, and it's a small group of people that act at a high level. Um, um, something about the national character I've noticed, and I really noticed it uh, last year about the nations in the thirties, where we had some mercs on on board, is uh, a lot of countries like a battle cry or something like that, and mm. <laughs> like I saw you cringe as we said it, like. Whereas British people are like, oh, no, that's not for me. Thank you very much. Like, I think we had um, the is it Belarusians working with us in the 30s. Yeah. And they yeah. were in the line and they were going, oh, we've got to do battle cry, get everyone's hopes. I'm like, ah. So British people are just like, oh, oh no. <laughs> no, thank you. I'll just, I'll just be quiet over here. Thank you very much. <laughs> that is a good point. I think we are kind of known nationally for being relatively professional in mm. the lists. Um, I can't talk about camp. I don't know what people think about us in camp, but in the <laughs> list, definitely professional. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think I think the given the number of people that are happy to ally with us for the thirties, 
we, I think we're very well received. So because we look for mercenaries in general, I think the I think people like to fight alongside us. Because hmm. um, I mean, as you're aware, with a white company doing 12s alliances with um, uh, Belarus and also uh, the Kaliningrad team, Western Tower, has to remember Kaliningrad there. It's <laughs> a fun word. Um, we we're always able to find people that want to work with us, yeah. um, and that's a that's a great thing to, to be nationally. The fact that we can say, "Hey, we need ten guys to fill up our team," and we will always find them. Well, that's good. They're so they were pretty high on the stock market. And that's that's always good to know. For um, the reason I'm asking these sort of questions is for this is going to go out to more junior lads in the sport, and it's good for them to get an idea of where we are internationally. And so, um, talking about foreign fighters and foreign teams, what do you think uh, our lads individually, our fighters, need to learn from foreign fighters and take back for their own sort of uh, attitude to training and competition in general? Okay, I say this to a lot of people. Look at Russians, look at the way they operate, look at the lack of ego in each Mm. individual fighter. There is nothing worse than a fighter who doesn't have the skill to match their self their self expansive belief of themselves mm. uh, yeah the sport is cool and you're a cool guy for doing it it doesn't mean you can heel kick your way to victory and it's not going to work either mm. um, a lot of a lot of the sport is team play and functional strategy nothing to do with uh, doing a JRPG <laughs> thing yeah I mean, I mean you look at fighters like uh, Adrian Wade love you Adrian mm. Uh, who likes to do his own thing in the fives team. Um, he can get away with it because, I mean, there's not many people that can deadlift a 180 kilo mass. Uh, for the lads at home that might not know him by name, this is uh, he's known as the French Ninja. And you see plenty mm. of compilations of him booming around the list, doing amazing stuff. But please carry on, Anthony. Yeah, yeah. So with, with him, it's kind of like he can get away with it a bit. Mm. And there's some Russian guys who are very, very high level that can get away with it as well. Um, but most of the time I see teams crumble is when there's a guy who clearly thinks he's awesome, runs mm. around, doesn't actually help that much. And it's basically a five on four fight the entire time. Yeah. Um, I mean, we all know it happens. Like it used to happen in the UK. Uh, and just learn functional basics mm. and once you've observed how like the Russian teams work they're always ready on time they 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 wait patiently in the list mm. they don't make a fuss if there's a problem Le- like things like if there's a dispute leave it to the captain to deal with yeah. it because he knows how to deal with it and those little bits of questions mm. yeah uh, and once you get that's something I've always uh, brought up to my lads like uh lads when they're going out to our first tournaments I've always said to them like I don't I'm not going to be upset by you being crap at this you can be crap all day long I'll be very impressed if you're good but the things that will annoy me is if you haven't got your helmet on in time you throw hissy fits and you cause problems just the very base of it all is behave yourself be ready on time and don't take a knee <laughs> hmm. and those are the very simple things um, for the lads to take away yeah. and uh Something you said about um, teamwork and individuals, something I've noticed um, kind of coincides with someone learning that not an individual on the field is kit choices. I don't know if you know, it's a lot of new fighters when they first get into it, they look at what everyone's wearing and go, no, I'm going to be unique. And they get a different helmet, they wear different armor, they, I'm going to get a 
smaller shield and two swords or something. But mm. then gradually as they realize they're not an individual on fighting on their own, they kind of it shifts and eventually they'll just be with a falchion and a punch shield in a wolf river as a kit falls in line so does the personality into yeah being a team player yeah uh I'm, i the day we get a samurai in the uk is the day i weep slowly into my grave Ooh. i don't know as long as he's not on my team i'll be pretty happy <laughs> well i mean he'll spend all this time re-sewing the armor tags on it's like what? There's about five thousand small pieces of lamellar, lamellar leather. If it's if it's actually authentic and all this kind of stuff, because I mean, I mean, I thought we were meant to stop at the 18th century, but uh, most steel lam- most steel suits are Age of Peace and not even for warfare. Hmm. So anyway, that's that's samurai. That's armor. a different gripe, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that's things to pick up. Is the the common theme is the small wins and the small practices of professionalism and everything. Um, what do you think the lads need to avoid picking up from other countries? Um, that's a good question. Um, I find and an awkward one. Always... That's why I feel it important to ask. It, well, it is awkward, yeah, because I could turn around and say, oh, if you look at this country, you'll see these problems. If you look at mm. this country, you see these problems. But it's a general question, so let's keep it general. Um, not every country has the same costs, mm. has the same access to materials. Like when you look at South America and you look at their equipment, yeah. that's a product of them being in South America. Yeah. It's not them making bad decisions. It's just the, the access that they have. They don't improving. have a museum full of Western medieval kit just down the road like many of us will. But they <laughs> don't have modern blacksmiths. <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of the problem. Like, I, I remember seeing uh, videos from there of guys who are wearing what I believe were laser-cut drain pipes for Greaves. Mm. And the thing is, though, they're, they're actually trying. So I wouldn't want to use that as an example of, oh, don't do not do this. Um, if you want to look at a country to see things not to do, if I'm going to be completely harsh and honest, and I know that their rep will agree with me, is the States. <laughs> oh, yeah, I knew where that was going. <laughs> Because um, if I ever see a, cow- a cowboy axe in the field, I'm like, oh, cool, he's going to suicide someone 100% of the time. And the whole thing with the USA is it's such a, a mess of strategy, equipment, ideas. And it's not to say their top teams aren't good, because their top teams are good. But they've got so many fighters, and the, the, the fighter uh, community is odd. I think Especially something you can... Take- uh put into the, the way the US is what we were just talking about about individualism and that's yes, quite that heavily it. ingrained into their culture so there's a lot of individuals with their own ideas and you can see how that ties into how um, they keep coming up with new rules because they think it's good so they come up with their own rule sets and it drifts further away from the established international norm well we're in that case we're talking about the ACS which is not HMB mm. they can do HMB but the ACS is not HMB. The ACS is its own thing, um, and I believe it has different equipment requirements, different yeah. thicknesses, and all the rest. And uh, for the sake of this being potentially partially public, I'll curtail any further comment yeah. out of politeness. Um, but I would be very honest about how I feel about it with them myself. But you can look at the ACS as an example of odd stuff to be aware of. They get a lot of people coming in who are like, ah, oh, I'm going to join the sport. I'm really excited. I'm going to dress up like this knight from a video game. And they go, go for it. Yeah. 
We've seen um, a lot of UK fighters on some of those pages. In my opinion, just being a uh, keeping their feet on the ground and being a source of realism, and it's not uh, well, particularly well. No, it's not. Well, I'm one of them. So, yes. I mean, I'm in there. And I, I don't go in there to wind people up. I go in there to try and actually say meaningful things. Mm. I've stopped now. Uh, we've got a couple of guys in the UK who literally go in there to pour petrol on the bonfire, which is, which has done exactly what you'd expect and caused small explosions. Um, and then simultaneously also, you go in there, you say something sensible like, hey, that barbute design is inauthentic and also unsafe. Um, and here's why it's inauthentic. And they go, yep, I like it. So do one. Uh, individual. I, yes, I am an individual. Please respect my combination of 16th century arms with 14th century torso because it's optimal and also a million bars in my helmet. Mm, beautiful. But yeah, I think you've got some very good points there. Um, we're coming towards the end of our time here now. So just a bit more of a flipping question for you. You've done a lot of tournaments. What is your tournament must-have kit just to make your life a little bit more comfortable? For example, for me, it's a pair of flip-flops. Something that's often forgotten, which makes your life a little bit more livable and comfortable. You know what I mean? Okay, so my hunt is going to be very different to yours because I've mm -hmm. been to, I've stayed in Russian hostels. Towel. Mm Towel. -hmm. <laughs> Tao. Take towel. Um, if you go to any tournament, the towel will either allow you to mop off sweat or have a towel. And this is kind of, I mean, I stayed in a Russian hostel and I was using my spare t-shirts to dry myself off. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I, I just didn't think about it. Uh, earplugs, take earplugs. Because if you're in a room of 30 people or more, say in a French tournament where they give you free accommodation, um, you may need them. There's if a couple of buzzsaws on Team UK, aren't there? Uh, there's a couple of buzzsaws in white company. <laughs> yes. um, that is that is that is kind of what I was getting to, um, but yeah, earplugs that will help you a lot. Uh, a towel that's just good for coverage. Now, for me personally, I don't tend to take anything special. I try and try and keep travel kind of light, um, but excess socks is also kind of a blessing. Uh, that one's very very useful. Uh, but things like I mean, if we're not if we're not talking about competition materials like no no it's lectures, yeah, then I would say towel earplugs um and some form of uh neck pillow just just on the off chance but that's that's it really I, it's i don't need to do too much more than that myself no there's good answers there well is there um why you've got the lads here is there anything else that you'd like to say to the lads out there yeah um i hope you've all been doing home body weight routines <laughs> you better you better be I, I've been doing them. <laughs> it's a running theme in those closing answers so far. For the last time we spoke to Dan Winter and his answer was pretty much the same. So, brilliant. Mm. Thank you very much for your time. There's been a lot of good uh, answers and questions me. there. And uh, hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. For the rest of you out there, uh, please subscribe and we'll be back online in a few days for something else. Thank you all very much and I'll see you soon.